passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, our special guest speaker. Good morning, Crosswinds Church. Uh, like Jordan said, for any of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan Johnson. I'm one of our elders here. Uh, if you're a visitor or a new, uh, we're currently in a series called Broken Vessels about how God uses flawed, normal people to achieve his will and bring him glory. When I told Jordan I was willing to give one of the sermons in this series, he showed me a list he'd come up with of a few people he thought would be good ideas for me to talk about. From this list, I chose Paul. I thought at the time that this seemed like a good idea because there's a lot in the Bible written about Paul, and there's even more that he wrote himself. This ended up being both good and bad because, like I said, there's a lot written about him. I wasn't going to run out of stuff to say, but there is a lot written about him, and I didn't have all that much time to prepare. Uh, so considering last year I spoke at our Monday-Thursday service and I covered the whole of the Old Testament and the four Gospels in 20 minutes, <laughs> narrowing my scope down to 13 books in 40 minutes is pretty good. <laughs> uh, so most Sundays at Crosswinds, you'll hear a polished sermon talking about a particular passage of the Bible. This is not going to be that. Um, what you'll get today is the patterns and ideas that I noticed as I read and reflected on what the Bible says about Paul and what Paul wrote himself. Uh, when I looked at the word count for my manuscript just a little bit before I finished, it was almost 50% direct quotes from scripture, so there's going to be a bit less interpretation than usual. Uh, when I decided on Paul, Jordan told me that he had a book for me to read about him that would be good uh, to help me prepare, so I got it from Jordan. And what Jordan failed to mention is that the book was 500 pages, <laughs> and it had well over 1,000 footnotes. So I read it over the course of a lot of hours, and I can confirm it was a good book, but just consider this a fair warning. If Jordan recommends a book to you, especially if you're on a timeline, ask for a little bit more detail. Uh, so now that I'm done throwing Jordan under the bus, we'll get started. Uh, please pray with me. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to worship and fellowship with your people here this morning. Speak to us through the study of Paul and your word, and let us learn from this example of someone who was once opposed to your gospel, but who became the apostle to the Gentiles. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. And let what is me fall away, leaving only what you'd have us learn. Amen. Okay, first we're going to start with just a little bit of background on Paul. Uh, Philippians 3.5 says, Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. So to expand on that just a little bit, Paul was born as Saul in the city of Tarsus in the province of Cilicia. This was to the north of Judea and Jerusalem. But despite not being born in Judea, he is undeniably an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, the same tribe as his likely namesake, King Saul. So it's kind of a misconception, but he didn't pick the name Paul when he became a Christian. Paul was just his Roman name, and Saul was his uh, Jewish name. But we hear him called Paul more often because he's in Roman territories a lot more than he is in Judea. He was also a Roman citizen. So Roman citizenship was uncommon, but not unheard of for a Jew in this time and place, and it allowed him certain rights that the average resident of a Roman, of a Roman province wouldn't have. Uh, his combined Roman and Jewish background equipped him uniquely for the job God had for him as the apostle to the Gentiles. He had in-depth background knowledge of scripture, as well as the respect and rights of a Roman citizen. So for example, Acts 22, 25 through 29 says, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. 
The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I, wasn't, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune was also afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. So we also know that Paul was a Pharisee, and most of what we read about the Pharisees in the New Testament isn't exactly positive, right? They were one of the groups most opposed to Jesus, and they were constantly debating him, trying to outsmart him. One of the four core Pharisaic teachings was purity and righteousness through the law. One of uh, these things was separation from impurity, specifically separation from Gentiles. So though Paul was not born in Jerusalem, that's where he was educated as a Pharisee, under the teaching of a Pharisee named Gamaliel. And we actually hear a little bit about Gamaliel and from Gamaliel in the book of Acts. So this is regarding the apostles before the religious leaders. Acts 5, 34 through 40. When they, the high priest and council, heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them, that is, the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care of what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So you can see what kind of man it was that Paul was educated under. Gamaliel was patient, calm, and logical, and because of those, he was respected. But where Gamaliel was content to wait and see how things played out, Paul was not. Paul took action. When I think of Paul and read what he wrote in his letters and what was written about him in Acts, the quality of his that is most apparent to me is his zeal. So dictionary.com defines zeal as fervor for a person, cause, or object, eager desire or endeavor, enthusiastic diligence. So looking at Paul's writing, we see zeal for righteousness, we see zeal for evangelism, and zeal for unity in individual churches as well as the church as a whole. But also, when I read Philippians 3.5 a little bit ago, I stopped before we got to verse 6. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, and as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. And Paul says it a different way in Galatians 1. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So for a Pharisee like Paul, the traditions of his fathers meant the law, God's word and their specific interpretation of it. Paul's persecution of the church was not based on a hatred of God, but it was based on a misguided, incorrect love of God. In his zeal, he did exactly what his teacher warned against, and he was found opposing God. In the really long book Jordan lent me, F.F. Bruce put it this way, No one had kept the law with greater devotion than Paul, and the law, far from securing his righteousness before God, actually led him into sin. It is his devotion to the law that made him such a zealous persecutor of the church. His persecuting zeal was but one aspect of his zeal for the law. He persecuted the church with a good conscience. Right up to the moment of his confrontation with the risen Christ, no shadow of doubt appears to have entered his mind that what he was doing brought pleasure to God. So here's something we can learn from Paul and be very intentional about in our own lives. Love God, 
love his word, but don't use it as a reason or a way to harm others. That doesn't mean we don't say hard things. That doesn't mean we sugarcoat or excuse sin. But we need to be careful. The gospel is hard enough without us adding our own stumbling blocks to it. So here's my clarifying statement. Have zeal, but make sure it's pointed in the right direction, and be careful how you use it. While none of us are likely to go around arresting Christians and hauling them back to Jerusalem to face judgment, we can still examine our lives and our thoughts to see where our zeal is pointed. Think about the, defi- uh, the definition as you think about your life. It's fervor, eager desire, enthusiastic diligence. Think about the things that give you a shot of adrenaline, the things that will always take your attention, the things that provoke a strong emotional reaction, either positively or negatively. It could be your favorite sports team. It could be something at work, a big sale or a promotion. It could be political debate or activism. For me, a big one is playing games. I sometimes play in tournaments down at Game State downtown, uh, but even just with friends or family, when I manage to win a close game, especially if it's because I did something clever, it feels great. I'm competitive, so I like winning, and even more, I like feeling smart. Uh, so whatever it is for you, it's not bad to have zeal in our lives, but the things in our life are not the most important thing to be zealous about. Do I, do we, get that excited and energized for the thing of God? Do I have fervor for studying God's word? Do I have eager desire for evangelism, worship, and good works? Do I have enthusiastic diligence regarding prayer? For Paul, his zeal for the law, a good thing, outpaced his understanding of the prophets and blinded him to the truth of Jesus. So now I'll talk a little bit about Paul's conversion. How did God take Paul, who was zealous for the law and persecution of the church, and turn him into Paul, who is zealous for the church and Christ, the fulfillment of the law. So Paul's conversion is initially found in Acts 9, starting in verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Saul arose from the ground, And although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So I'll pause here. After he arrived in Damascus, Paul fasted for three days. I think he spent those days reconciling his knowledge and zeal for the law with what he had just heard from Jesus, powerfully and personally. As well, I think, he had to come to terms with his own actions. In Paul's own retelling of his conversion in Acts 26, he says, When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them. So he did these things, and now he realized he was wrong. In a raging fury, he was part of executing Christians. He was on his way to Damascus to keep doing it. So he had a lot to think about in those three days. Picking up in Acts 9.10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, 
Go, for he is the chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? So Paul kept his zeal, but now it had a good and righteous purpose. He goes from, In a raging fury I persecuted them, to, Immediately he proclaimed Jesus. After he gave himself to Jesus, God used Paul and his zeal powerfully, and he became one of the most important figures in the early church, particularly among the Gentiles. He traveled all around the Mediterranean region, planting churches. May we too, like God's Spirit, reorient our zeal like he did with Paul. So my next area to take an example from Paul is this. We should tailor our communication and even our actions to fit our audience. This doesn't mean compromising the message, just being intentional with our tone, words, and points of focus. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23 For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those out under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So if you read a lot of Paul's writing and teaching, there's a few things that are consistent. Uh, for example, run-on sentences and convoluted grammar. Uh, but as well, he always has a consistent gospel message of grace and a call for unity and purity within the church. But there's a lot of details that are different depending on who he's writing to, uh, the particulars of their circumstances, their culture, and whether or not they're already Christians. For example, in Acts 17, we read about Paul in the city of Athens. So Athens was the cultural hub of literature, education, and philosophy in the Greek world. And while he was there, witnessing and discussing with both Jews in the synagogue and the Gentiles in the marketplace, uh, he directly quoted Greek poetry along with using Old Testament biblical thoughts. And even the biblical thoughts he used, he ordered and phrased in such a way to make sense to his polytheistic but educated and curious audience. So starting in verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For he brings some strange things to our ears. We wish, therefore, to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and their boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by man whom, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. Another thing to notice is how Paul speaks to Jewish non-believers compared to how he speaks to Gentile non-believers compared to how he speaks to his fellow Christians as individuals and his churches. So when Paul witnesses to Jewish non-believers, he speaks with an aim to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies, and that he's the one they've been waiting for all this time. When speaking to Gentile non-believers, he presents the gospel at a more basic level, without the assumption of the Jewish background and knowledge. For example, 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Some people we interact with on a daily basis don't have any baseline of knowledge regarding the church, the Bible, or God. Some have a basic or flawed understanding, and some people were raised in the church, even a good church, but for whatever reason, never came to faith or have fallen away. So they know the stories, they know the laws, the principles, but they don't have belief. If we want to evangelize effectively, Knowing where someone is coming from is important. When speaking to the Gentile non-believers, Paul also calls them to repentance, as in Acts 17.30. But note that he's not specific in addressing these unbelievers' sins. I don't mean by this that we should pretend sin is not sin, or even to close our eyes to the specific sins we see around us. But what I'm saying is that we shouldn't be walking down the street and telling a gay couple, your lifestyle is sinful and disgusting to God and you're going to hell. By the way, church is at 9.30 in the morning. Come join us because God loves you. That's just not going to be very effective evangelism, and it's not following the example set by Paul. However, when Paul is writing to believers and speaking to them, this is when he doesn't pull his punches regarding unrepentant sin. For example, 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Or 1 Corinthians 5.1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. I picked these two examples because in them he is acknowledging the sin and the culture around the church, but he's using it as a point to correct those who should know better. Paul specifically addresses this later in 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world 
or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So I think our witness to the world would be improved if we would spend more time correcting the failings and sin and division in the church and in ourselves and less time trying to make unbelievers look like believers. Take a second and think about what sin bothers you the most when you see it in the world. It could be some kind of sexual sin. It could be drug use. For me at my job, I hear a lot of stories about different kinds of fraud. And the ones that really upset me are when a fraudster takes advantage of a lonely old person with nobody around to help them and steals the little bit that they have left with promises of companionship or an easier life. We get rightly upset when we see sinful actions, particularly those that harm others. But we should be at least as concerned about the person inside the church who fudges their income when filing their taxes as we are about whatever sin you just thought of from an unbeliever. Why? Because only the unrepentant sin of the believer reflects back to Jesus and his church. The sin of the unbelieving is the natural and inevitable result of sinful, broken people living in a sinful and broken world. So we should feel pity and not disgust when we see sin outside the church. So if we follow Paul's example and become all things to all people and put in the effort to tailor our message carefully to those around us, what's going to happen? 1 Corinthians 9.22, again, it says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save all I come in contact with. Right? Not so much. It gives us more tempered expectations. That by all means I might save some. Even if we do everything right, some will not come to follow Christ. But thankfully, our job isn't to change people's hearts and redeem them. That's God's job. We're just called to speak the truth of the beautiful and glorious grace and power of his gospel of redemption into a dark and needy world. And if we do that faithfully and live as lights in the darkness, God will use us. But it's his power and his mercy that changes hearts. It's not our cleverest arguments. It's not our most selfless actions. And it's not our most perfect moral living. Another example we can take from Paul is his acknowledgement and discussion of his own personally continued sin and failings. Romans 7, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But in my members, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And Philippians 3, 8 through 14. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So as Christians, we're not called to appear perfect, to hide our sins away so that we look good to the world. In fact, when we try this, and I say try intentionally because it never works for long, we're rightly viewed as hypocrites, policing the sins of others while ignoring the sin amongst ourselves. Instead, we ought to proclaim and rejoice in the saving righteousness we have only through Christ, and to acknowledge that whatever good is in us, it is not our own. We also need to keep striving toward perfection continually, knowing that we'll never achieve it in this life, and we will continually and persistently fail. The next example to take from Paul is to work toward unity and reconciliation within the church, even in the midst of disagreement and conflict. We are ultimately united in Christ. I'll give one specific example in Paul's life and then read a few more passages where he instructs others. First is Paul and John Mark. And this is not one passage in the Bible, but it plays out over the course of a long time. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. So John Mark was on a missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas, but he abandoned them in the middle of the mission. We're not told why, but we can see by Paul's reaction the next time Barnabas wants to bring John Mark with him that the parting wasn't amicable. And then we don't know what happened, except by Paul's words in a few of his letters. It's apparent that they reconciled at some point to the extent that Paul wants to see him in his last days. Among the greetings that Paul sends to the church in Colossae, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. And in 2 Timothy 4.11, Get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for the ministry. So after abandonment and disagreement, Paul and John Mark are reconciled. We don't know how or when this happened, 
but it is an example to us that it did. He calls John Mark a comfort and very useful. To me, this speaks to a part of Paul's sanctification. His zeal became softened by grace. He didn't lose the zeal, but he spoke and lived with more gentleness later in his life. His relationship with John Mark is in line with the bigger issue of Christian unity that Paul brings up elsewhere. So 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then Romans 15, 5 through 7. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So it's important for us to remember that in Christ, we ultimately have a stronger bond with any Christian than with any unbeliever. We should feel a stronger connection to, somebody, to a Christian of a different race, different tax bracket, different political party, living somewhere completely different than you, compared to the connection we feel to an atheist down the street who drives the same car as you, votes the same way as you, and roots for the same variety of Iowa sports as you. The last point of example from Paul that I want to talk about today is to remember that this world is not ultimately our home. We won't be here forever. And this should provoke two reactions in us. The first is a sense of urgency in our work here that we're called to do. The other is a longing toward our forever home in the presence of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And 2 Corinthians 5, 6-9. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And then Philippians 1, 18-26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again.
And last, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So in that last passage, when Paul says that day and his appearing, he's referring to when Jesus will come again. Do we look forward to that day with zealous, eager desire? God used Paul, the broken vessel who called himself the foremost of all sinners, in a mighty way. We all have our own ongoing sins, our own misdirected zeal, but God still uses people like us. Remember that our time in this world is limited, and we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to the one that bought us with his blood by his perfect redeeming sacrifice. So have zeal, but make sure it's pointed in the right direction, and work for the things of God, for the good of his kingdom, our coming eternal home, and our present glorious hope. Please pray with me again. Father God, we thank you that through your spirit and your continual sanctifying power, our zeal can be used for your kingdom and your glory. Convict us when we misuse it and give us your strength to keep straining forward and pressing on toward the goal. As Paul says, the law of our flesh is sin, but thanks be to God who can deliver us from this body of death through Jesus. Let us not become complacent and used to the fact of our salvation, but help us to be continually in awe and continually be stirred, uh, spurred to praise because of it. Lord Jesus, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.